The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Judges 3, 12 to 30. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Excuse me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the son of Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> and he, he ate a lot of carbs. Um, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, uh, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived... He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. 
and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray and dive into the word. Father, we are grateful. Grateful that everything you give us in your word is a good gift from you. And I pray that by your spirit who inspired this word, you would unwrap the good gift for us this morning. That we would see clearly the kind of savior that you are. And that we would see more clearly in the midst of of darkness, we would see more of the brightness of the gospel. We love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. You're going to want to follow along with this one. It's rather funny. At least it's supposed to be. Judges chapter 3. We're encountering the second cycle. Remember, Judges is made up of several cycles where this basic plot is going to repeat itself. And we're entering into the second cycle of sin and salvation in the book of Judges. Now, if you can recall, last time we were together... We walked through the first cycle, and what we saw in that first cycle is the thing that lies at the heart of every cycle. Namely, we saw who the Savior is doing the saving in Judges, God. Yes, in every cycle of sin and salvation, we're going to see God raise up a judge, a deliverer, a Moshiach, a Savior. We're going to see him raise up this earthly Savior. We, We saw that in the first cycle with Othniel. But if you remember, through Othniel's story, we saw highlighted for us the fact that it really isn't Othniel, it's really God who saves his people. We asked the question, who saved them? And we saw the answer clear as day, God. But that doesn't mean, as soon as I say that, and that's true, and that's at the heart of every single story we're going to encounter, but... As soon as I say that, I also want to say that doesn't mean that the earthly saviors, the judges that we see in these stories, doesn't mean that they are unimportant. Because, as we say all the time at Shades, our God is God of means. He loves to work his power through things or through people, people like the judges. Yes, God is the one doing the saving, but he does it through these judges. So we need to look at them in order to learn more about him. You see how that works? Like, God is the one at the heart of the saving. So when we look at the judges that he uses to do the saving, they actually reveal things about God's heart. When we look at these judges, we're mainly seeing truths about God and the kind of savior that he is. And today we learn he is a left-handed savior. I believe that is what the second cycle of sin and salvation reveals through the judge that it shows us, the savior that's raised up, Ehud. Shades, this is good news. It is good news that God chooses to use a left-handed Say a left, someone left-handed to save. And it is good news that he himself is a left-handed savior. It's good news that God chooses to use the left-handed save, and it is good news that he himself is a left-handed savior. I believe that that truth right there is what we desperately need to see this morning. At this specific moment in history, and at this specific moment in our body. Confused? Intrigued? 
Look into the text with me and let's see the good news of a left-handed Savior. Judges 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Eglon gathered to himself Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. If you remember, I've told you that these cycles that come at us come at us in six steps or six phases. You probably don't remember them. I've tried to make them as memorable as possible by giving them all an R or an R sound. They are rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. All of those are going to be present in this story right here in front of us and what we're seeing right here. And these verses are the first two. We see rebellion. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see wrath. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And we've seen all of this before, right? And we saw all of this in the story of Othniel. But there are a few things that are new right here that we need to pay attention to. This story specifically is filled with satire. It's filled with irony. It's it's kind of like an SNL sketch. Welcome to Sabbath Night Live, everybody. I've been waiting all week to drop that joke. (laughs) This story is meant to make you laugh. When you all laughed earlier, you're doing the right thing. Like it's meant to, to do that. We can see that as soon as we hear the king of Moab's name, Eglon. That's not his real name. That is is a nickname, either given by our author or by the people, to poke fun. That's something that never happens anymore. Nicknames are never given to people, politicians in power, in order to make fun of them. It's just not a thing. The name Eglon means little cow or calf we might say, what we're going to see is that this nickname cuts two ways satirically. It's it's a double-edged insult that doesn't just cut at Eglon. We can see how it's supposed to do that pretty immediately. But it doesn't just cut at him. It cuts at Israel. That's actually what we're encountering first right here in verses 12 to 14. I mean, Eglon might be getting called a calf, but this calf conquers Israel. He makes alliances with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He takes possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho. If you remember the story of the Battle of Jericho, that's the very place where God had once given his obedient people victory over their enemies. And now it's the very place where he gives his disobedient people over to their enemies in defeat. We're told why. It's because of their idolatry. That's what's getting highlighted for us satirically through Eglon's name. Look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon. They served this calf, king of Moab, 18. Years. If that's not ringing any bells for you from Israel's past just yet, know that the word for served right there is the Hebrew word avad. It can mean work, serve, 
can also mean worship. Vod is what Adam did with God in the Garden of Eden. It's what the priests were to do in the tabernacle. It's what God said he was rescuing his people from Egypt for, to bring them out so that they might serve. Avad, worship him. Do you see right here what we're being told? The people of God served, or we might say, in a way, worshiped this calf. Does that not bring up anything from Israel's past? Perhaps maybe their first venture into idolatry where they worshiped a a golden calf. I mean, irony? Anybody? I guess basically the author saying, Israel, here you are again, basically in the same place that you began, bowing down to a cow conquered by a calf. A calf whose name seems like a one-sided insult right now. Like it only makes fun of Israel. Because honestly, currently, when I look at everything we're being told about King Eglon, all I see is a thriving king. In fact, king is exactly what he is called every stinking time we hear his name. Do you notice that? He's never just Eglon. He's Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab. Did we mention this guy as a king? It's it's like our author wants us to see all the positive things about this guy. Look at his wise war tactics as he makes alliances. Look Look at his power as he conquers the city of Palms. Look, look at Eglon, a wise and powerful king of this world. Like so far, I only see one edge to his name as it cuts Israel with deep and painful irony. That's all we would see if we didn't keep reading. Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Regret, rebellion, wrath, regret. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a Moshiach, a judge, a deliverer, a savior. In other words, here comes rescue. The Lord raised up for them a savior, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, by, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So the people cry out. Remember, this is not a cry of repentance. This is a cry of pain. And God still, out of his great mercy and grace, moves to act on their behalf. And it's like, all right, finally. Fine. All right, Eglon, Mr. Wise and Powerful. Now you got it coming. Our God's raising up a savior for us. Let's see what your power and wisdom look like when set next to this Savior. But then we see this Savior. And the blade of irony is just driven deeper. Because what do we see? We get Ehud. And aside from his name, which we'll talk about in just a second, aside from his name, we get two ironic details about him that near about make us despair. First, He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Yay. Benjamin is this small, unimpressive tribe. 
They've only been mentioned once so far in the book of Judges. It was back in Judges chapter 1 and verse 21, and it was just to highlight the fact that they were a failure. They're going to get featured rather prominently in the conclusion of the book of Judges for the same reason, to just show us how big of a failure they are. As a whole, the book of Judges really makes us ask, can anything good come out of Benjamin? Thus far, Ehud is not an impressive savior, and it only gets worse because we're not just told first that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Second, we're told that he's left-handed. Great. The, the Hebrew wording right here, it could actually mean that Ehud's literally handicapped. It could mean that his right hand doesn't work at all. Or, more likely, and I think this is what I think is probably true, it just means that he's left-handed. Either way, it's not great. No offense to any of my left-handers. Left Do I have left-handers? Where are you? Left-handers, come on, proud. Andrew, yeah, yeah, you can all like form a club. It'd be great. All right, no offense, but in ancient Israelite culture, your left-handedness would not have been seen as unique and special and as an advantage uh, especially if you were a uh, man of military age because your right hand was your sword hand. It's your, it's your strong hand that you fight with in order to save and bring salvation. This is why the right hand actually becomes a symbol used all throughout Scripture as a symbol of power and a symbol of salvation. For instance, Exodus 15 and verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Stuff like that's all over the place, especially in the Psalter. Ehud is weak. See this, Shades? Ehud is weak in the very place a Savior needs to be strong. And the fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin only drives this irony home further. Does anyone know what the name Benjamin means? Son of the right hand. He is a left-hander from the tribe of the right-handed. Surely he is aptly named. Ehud means where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? Because we surely don't see it when we look at this Savior, especially when we set him next to Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon looks like power and wisdom incarnate. Ehud looks like weakness and foolishness. Perhaps, I can't prove this, but perhaps that's why his fellow Israelites give him the job of taking tribute to Eglon. So that Eglon could see these people, they're they're not a threat to his rule. They're not warriors. They're weak. There's nothing to worry about. Perhaps, perhaps that was the people's plan in sending Ehud. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that Ehud had a different plan for going. Look at verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, anywhere from 12 to 18 inches. It's basically a dagger, short sword. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. A right-hander would strap their weapon 
to their left side. That's the side they're going to draw from. That's the side you'd actually be looking for a weapon to be at. What he's doing is actually fairly wise here, playing to his own strengths. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So, Ehud crafts a short sword, a double-edged dagger that's easy for piercing. And this double-edged dagger is also revealing to us the other edge of Eglon's name. Did you notice right here, for the first time, at the end of verse 17, for the first time, Eglon is named without calling him king. It's so that we won't miss the irony. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Or we might say, now this little calf had grown very fat. It was a fattened calf. You ever heard the term fattened calf in the Bible before? Do you know what it means that that calf is ready for? See this. In, in all his wisdom and power, Eglon is being pictured for us as a calf fattened, ready for slaughter. Like, like this is when the back row of Sabbath night live starts snickering. Because they know what's coming. And so Eglon's being pictured that way for us. And then here's Ehud in all of his weakness and foolishness. And he's literally the one sharpening the knife. It is beginning to look like everything that we've seen thus far is about to flip. Ehud brings tribute to Eglon. The Hebrew word for tribute right here likely indicates that this was a grain offering. Israel was an agricultural society, so it makes sense. They would pay their tribute in some kind of produce, and it's right on the heels of that that we're told Eglon has been growing fat. In other words, this is a picture of him growing wealthy off of his extortion of Israel. you got to understand, like when it tells us here that Eglon was fat in the ancient Near East, that wasn't an insult. Fatness was associated with wealth. Like, like again, this is another thing that would have symbolically set Eglon apart as powerful, wise, wealthy. But ironically, we are beginning to see it as weakness and foolishness. That he is a fattened calf for Slaughter. Eglon's power and wisdom is beginning to look like weakness and foolishness. Perhaps, perhaps that also means that what looks weak and foolish about Ehud is about to be revealed as power and wisdom. That's exactly what we see, Shades. Look at verse 18. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. They give the tribute, they leave, they get to basically the border of the country, and all the people that were helping carry, he's like, you guys keep going. I left something, got something to turn around for. And he does an about face right in front of these idols near Gilgal. It was not uncommon for idols to be set up right at the borders of places. Now, this wasn't just to have like a, oh, welcome, here's a place of worship. It wasn't just for that, but it was also almost like a statement of, 
here are the gods who rule and reign here. It's right in front of them that Ehud turns around. Like, Like as if to say to their face, we'll see who really rules and reigns over Moab today. I dare you to watch what I'm about to do. It's it's like he's daring these idols, the gods of Moab, to prove they can see the plan that he is hiding on his right side. It's like he's daring them to prove that they are powerful and wise or be revealed as weak and foolish, lifeless lumps of stone. Ehud turns back. He arrives back, and in verse 19, he says to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. The Hebrew irony is thick right here. I really, so as a church, we just collectively need to learn Hebrew, and then we'll all be able to belly laugh at all of the Hebrew jokes. I'm just kidding. But the Hebrew irony is thick right here because the word message, I have a secret message, devar, the word is hilariously vague. It can be a double entendre right here, it can mean message can also simply just mean thing. In other words, Eglon hears this, I've got a secret message for you, O king. But on our ears, Sabbath Night Live audience, we hear, I've got a secret thing for you, O king, and we know what that thing is strapped to his right thigh. Ehud's words are double-edged, just like his blade. And the king wants to hear them. So he sends everybody out. Verse 20, and Ehud came to him when he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. I want a cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Eglon arose from his seat. Kum. I point out that Hebrew word for rose because it's been used once before. And again, a Hebrew audience hearing this, it would immediately take their ears back to verse 15 where we were told that God raised up a deliverer. And now Eglon rises up. And it's as if by using the same word, the author is saying here comes deliverance. They're in this cool roof chamber, basically the king's man cave. Ehud gets him to stand up, put him in perfect position to execute his, his plan, which then unfolds for us in super slow motion. This is very rare in Scripture, but we get like a play-by-play in verses 21 to 23. Look at it. And Ehud reached with his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. That's how I read the Bible, y'all. Sound effects included. It closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Now, this room was awkwardly quiet while I read all of that. As adults, we read this and we're either disgusted, like, 
gross, Jonathan, why do you do the sound effects? Or better yet, we get morally indignant. Like, shame on Ehud for all of this deception, this despicable assassination right here. How could God ever use such a savior? Oh, he's gonna use much worse shades. Much, much worse. And I am very, very thankful because it means he'll use someone as messed up as me. Is that really what's going on right here? Horrid deception and a horrid assassination? I mean, we have to dismiss the fact that we are dealing with an oppressive tyrant who for 18 years has grown fat by impoverishing and extorting Israel. Like as modern Western adults, we hear this story the wrong way. If you want to see how this story should be heard, read it to a group of middle school boys. Because when they hear verses 21 through 23, the room is not silent at all. You can't get them to quit laughing. That's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, in Hebrew, this paragraph right here, it basically ends with a a parallel punchline. You can kind of see it at the end of verse 22, beginning of verse 23. Look at it. We read, and the dung came out, then Ehud went out. Everybody's making an exit that's how you're supposed to receive that. And for this king who looks so wise, he looks so powerful, his exit proves him to be weak and foolish when all his wisdom and power is reduced to a pile of poop. Even his fatness, like a very symbol of his status, has become the very means of his humiliation. All the while... Ehud's left-handedness has become the very means of salvation. Like, this judge who looked so foolish and weak, his exit proves him to be powerful and wise. And, And all this irony, all this irony turns the lament of God's people. You remember where they were at the beginning of the story? Crying out to God? Pain? Regret? Lament, it turns their lament, all this irony turns God's people's lament into laughter. And the whole thing just gets funnier. Verse 24, when Ehud had gone out, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. In other words, they smell poo. And they're like, give the man his space. We know this situation. So they wait, and they wait, verse 25, and they waited until they were embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, the the SNL laugh light's going off again. (laughs) But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, nobody takes this long, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the I don't know if you noticed this, but after Ehud stabbed Eglon, he no longer gets named or titled. No longer Eglon, no longer king. All his wisdom and power reduced to weakness and foolishness. There lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. Ha ha! And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. 
those idols. They couldn't stop Ehud. They could do nothing to protect Eglon. They could do nothing to stop Ehud because they were nothing. And now everybody knows it. Look at verse 27. When Ehud arrived, that's arrived back to his home country, he sounded the trumpet, takah. I give you that Hebrew word again because that original audience would recognize it. They heard it before, back up in verse 21. This verb, when it's applied to a sword, it means to thrust. When it's applied to a trumpet, it means to blow or to blast. In other words, he is blasting forth the deliverance that has been achieved by his dagger. And everybody knows it. Everybody hears it. He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader from Benjamin, left-handed. Doesn't matter. Now everybody follows this left-handed Savior. They have heard the trumpet declare the deliverance of his dagger. And it doesn't matter anymore that he's from Benjamin. It doesn't matter anymore that he's left-handed. God has flipped everything on its head. He has used the foolish things to shame the wisdom of this world and the weak things to shame the power of this world. And now God brings this great salvation to completion. The people follow Ehud down to the fords of the Jordan River to cut off the Moabites' attempt at retreat. Look at what happens in verse 29. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years, for two generations. 10,000, killed 10,000, about 10,000 Moabites. It's It's a round number of completeness. All of these were strong, we're told, able bodied men. In other words, they were powerful, they were the kind of warriors it was wise to use in war. And the foolish, weak, way of God wipes them out. Not a man escaped. This is complete rescue and it leads to rest all because of God's left-handedness. Shades, do do you see? Do you see what it means that God is a left-handed Savior? means that he doesn't use the means that this world sees as wise and powerful. No, he, he takes the exact opposite path to prove this world's wisdom isn't wisdom at all. It's foolishness. This world's power, it's not power at all. It's weak. It's laughable. Psalm 2 Verse two, the kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The heart of every king is like water in his hands, the proverb tells us. No tyrant, no king, no earthly source of political power is any match for God and for his anointed savior. I don't care how left-handed his anointed savior looks. No one shades ever looked more left-handed, weak, foolish than our Savior, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 in verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Where's the splendor? Where's the majesty? 
He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Shades, this guy was born in a stinking manger, swept up sawdust for 30 years near about. His hometown, for crying out loud, was Nazareth. That's worse than him being from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, we ask, can anything good come out of Benjamin? All you got to do is turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 46, to hear it literally asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Shades, by the world's standards, it doesn't look any weaker. It doesn't look any more foolish than Jesus. But the reality of 1 Corinthians 1, 24, is that Christ Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the ultimate left-handed Savior. He's the answer. He's the answer to Ehud's name. Where's the splendor? Where's the majesty? It's in Jesus. Shades, this is what we desperately need to see. And we desperately need to see it at this specific point moment in history, in, in this moment, at least in our context, as Christians in the West, specifically in America, we need to see this. Christians in our context are letting go of Christ left and right, and on the left and right, to cling to saviors that look a heck of a lot more like Eglon. Trusting in political power that I promise you, Shades, is just being fattened up to one day be revealed as weak. It may look wise right now, but one day it will be revealed for the foolishness that it is. Shades, I would plead with you, do not trade Ehud for Eglon. Don't trade Jesus for just another passing power that the world has to offer you in this moment. It is moments like right now when it matters most. It matters most that we cling to Christ in foolishness and embrace weakness. It matters because that is when we witness to the world of where true power and wisdom lies in the hands of a left-handed Savior. Shades, this is our good news. We ain't got no other gospel. This is our good, the good news of the gospel is that God is a left-handed savior and, and he loves to save the left-handed, the weak, the foolish. He loves to save the left-handed and use them to spread this gospel good news. God loves to save and use Ehud's like me and you. This, shades, this is the good news that we desperately need at this specific moment in our body. There are so many, so many of you in hard places right now. I know, because we talk. So many facing things that make you feel weak, and that make your faith seem foolish. Make the gospel seem and feel foolish. Shades. To you, I say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling. My dear brothers and sisters, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, all of you were left-handed. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose your left-handedness. The in this very moment when you feel at your weakest, God chose you here to put the power of the gospel on display. He's a left-handed savior and he uses the left-handed to put his salvation on display. Um, this... Uh, this past week, I flew to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, to be with Jason and Rena Kelly. For a long time, we have been praying together for their five-month-old son, Ezekiel. For those of you who don't know, Zeke had a, uh, a very rare form of muscular dystrophy, virtually no strength at all, virtually no muscle. Couldn't turn his head, lift his hand. And the disease was aggressively getting worse. There was nothing that uh, the doctors could do. And so on Thursday at 924 in the morning, Zeke left Jason and Rena's arms to be held in Jesus's. We wept in that hospital room for a long time. And we sat. And we talked. Cried as we talked. Laughed as we talked. the strength of God be put on display amidst Jason and Rena's weakness. And I think if you ask them, they would tell you that they couldn't see that or feel it. But with every fiber of my being, I could shave. Especially, especially when the medical personnel were given permission to begin coming through the room. Doctor after doctor, nurse after nurse, not, not just coming in to offer condolences, but to weep over the strength that they had seen displayed through Zeke. Those are their words, not mine. Strength. And they said those words not knowing what, what I knew about Ezekiel's name. Do you know what the name Ezekiel means? Without muscles, Zeke's life bore witness to the strength of God. As his name declares, like through Zeke, 
God did and is doing what only God can do, reveal his power through weakness, shades. That's what he does through you. This is the good news that we see through Ehud. Our God is a left-handed Savior, and he loves to work his powerful salvation through the left-handed. Father, there is no greater news than your gospel. No greater majesty, no greater glory that is able to enter in to everything and redeem it. Pray for us as a people that amidst a moment when so many believers in our country, in the West, are tempted to place their faith in the power and wisdom of the world, I pray that you would make us a people who are different, a people who embrace what is weak and foolish, a people who embrace Jesus and cling to him no matter what. We are a people who are hurting. There are so many and heavy places in this body where it feels like every light possible has gone out. I pray that in the midst of that moment, you would reveal the brightness of the light of the gospel. That right specifically in their weaknesses where you would show your strength and prove that your gospel is not foolishness, but it is your wisdom. God, I pray for Rena and Jason. that amidst unspeakable pain, they would know and cling to the reality that you're present. And Lord, I pray that we would stand amazed that you stay bear witness to the wonder of your strength as Zeke his life bears witness to that. Or make us a people who see with your eyes. Make us a people who live our lives left-handed. For your glory. I pray these things. Son G.